Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Tristan. I'm so happy to welcome you guys to the Novus Podcast. This is a podcast that's going to change your life. I need you guys to watch all the way to the end. But first, hit that subscribe button, share this with a friend, like, and comment. Let's get into this. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 32 of the Novus Church Podcast. Um, guys, we've been looking forward to this all week and all month, I want to say, because I've been just praying about it and stirring up, asking Holy Spirit who I should invite. And I invite this man and I'm just like so pumped. Um, he's a He graduated from Global Awakening um, School of Supernatural Ministry. And then also he interned for Randy Clark and he works really close with Randy Clark. Um, and he he's just an amazing man of God. And I honestly believe that he has something that is going to be imparted to you all today. And I just want to introduce uh, Brian Starley to you. And uh, here we go. Welcome, bro. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Tristan. It's great to be with you. Great to be with uh, all of the Novus Church family. Um, it's my first time doing this. And so, um, yeah, for the sake of awkward transition here, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what What do you normally do? Do we normally just flow directly from here into yeah. teaching or? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, all right. Well, guys, uh, um for the sake of our time, we'll just jump right in. Uh, I'm going to talk with a pretty brief word here, about 35 or 40 minutes. And um, if you want, you can open with me to 2 Corinthians 1.20. I want to speak about a few things thematically um, to everybody watching. I want to speak about revival. I want to speak about sovereignty. And I want to speak about our responsibility or human agency. And the way that all of those things intersect um, for a number of reasons. You know, one of them is... For the simple fact that for you know 500 some odd years since the Reformation, uh, and I love and honor Martin Luther as a man of God and as uh, someone raised up to certainly accomplish something needed uh, at the time for Reformation for the kingdom, um, and I, I honor him. I honor Ulrich Zwingli and uh, the other reformers um, and pre-reformers absolutely. But what you see so many times. When God begins to move, and you see this in revivals, in Reformation moments, in awakenings, you see truths that are often neglected, dead, or dormant, where when the Lord begins to move and the Spirit begins to move, that truth that's been like a dry bones thing, if we could pull the imagery from Ezekiel, the Lord breathes on it, and he resurrects that truth. And it's amazing that he does that, but undeniably what begins to happen over time is that truth begins to be put on a pedestal for the sake of the pitfall of another equally important truth. And uh, we could also call this like a pendulum swing. God raises something up and it's good that he raises it up, but just out of our human tendencies, we tend to then swing the pendulum into uh, such a restoration and realization of that truth that the other important things are neglected. And so as amazing as Luther was and the Reformation was as needed as that was, one of the unfortunate things that happened there is Luther so wanted to distance himself from the Catholic Church, which as a byproduct meant distancing himself from everything to do with mysticism, everything to do with the supernatural element of the church uh, that had been the case up until the 95 Thesis being actualized. Really, if, if that's a shorthand definition, but 
this is what happened. And a number of things happened as a result of that. And one of them was uh, you ended up in not only this worldview and church worldview that ended up de-emphasizing the supernatural and really having a grid of or lack of a grid to the supernatural. But you also ended up with this mentality that uh, we we didn't really have any role to play by and large in the equation of the sovereignty of God. And so as a result, um, many things when it comes to the enacting of the kingdom, uh, the supernatural, signs and wonders, our role to play in revival, our role to play in uh, awakenings and, and just whatever sort of phrasing we would want to put around moves of the spirit, our role essentially became no role whatsoever as we would just sort of sit back. And uh, I like to often call it, you know, I'm sitting at a chair right now and, uh, as is Tristan, but um, unfortunately I don't have a nice lazy boy chair, but I like to call it like the Christian lazy boy mentality uh, began to take shape within the church, which just sort of said, God, okay, here I am. If you want to do anything, I'm open. If you want to touch me, touch me. If you want to heal me, heal me. If you want to use me to reach anyone else, I'm not going to stop you. I'm open if you want to do it. And not to say that that's necessarily a sinful thing, but the issue is it's not simply openness that we find within the scripture as an attitude of people that lay hold of the things of God. God's never after my openness. He's after more so my brokenness. He's after a mentality like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord in Genesis. He says, I'm not willing to let you go unless you bless me. Um, in the positive sense of this word, he actually wants you to be tormented by the promises. And that's when you're ready to possess them. He doesn't uh, want me to simply have and, you know, uh, if if you will, mentality. He wants a a... Bartimaeus mentality, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You're willing to do whatever it takes to cast aside your cloak and to stand up and to go to him. Despite the fact that in Bartimaeus' story, even the disciples are telling him to be quiet. And Bartimaeus cast aside his cloak, which was essentially his disability check that enabled him to be allowed to beg for alms outside the temple to go and to get to Jesus because he carried that kind of a recklessness and desperation. So that's what the Lord is after. And the problem with us uh, having a, a misunderstanding or misappropriation or misuse of sovereignty is, and what has been the case for, for hundreds of years in the church. Now, thankfully, the Lord is shifting this and turning the tide. Uh, but I still think it's a very important issue to speak to. Um, as I run into people who have a misunderstanding of this all over the world frequently. The problem is that We've largely turned sovereignty into a scapegoat. It's become the easy way out. It's, it's become, we can't let sovereignty be a crutch that supports the weight of a lack of, uh, that supports the weight of our fruitlessness, if I could say it that way. We can't allow sovereignty to be a crutch that supports the weight of our lack of fruit. So I think the answer that we find in scripture, that we find in the early church fathers, that we find in revival history, and even in our contemporary heroes of the faith, is that these are the people who are willing to just sit passively. There are people of pursuit, and pursuit looks like something. And um, with that being said, I, I, uh, there's a few passages I want to reference from the Gospel of John before we read from our main passage here in 2 Corinthians. And, um, you know, I know... Uh, 
that's could be a bit of a mouthful, a lot of what I've just said, but um, we've got limited time together. So uh, some of this may be a bit like drinking from a fire hose, but thankfully this is recorded. It's on YouTube, so you can back up and um, listen again and again. But uh, John, John's gospel, for many reasons, varies from the synoptics, from Matthew through Luke. And um, I'm tempted to chase that rabbit further, but I, I don't, I can't. Um, but there's a few very important things uh, that correlate with the sovereignty issue and, and our role to play that are in the Gospel of John. Um, one of them is in the closing of John's Gospel in the 21st chapter. Uh, John ends it with, of course, he's, he's using some hyperbole, but he's doing it to make a point. He says that if that he essentially says that Jesus performs so many works that all the books of the earth can be enough to contain them. So that is that's our first layer. Okay, Jesus did so much, all the books of the earth can contain them. And with that being said, in the entirety of John's gospel, he only chooses seven miracles to tell us that Jesus did. So that gets my wheels turning. That makes me think, okay, John, if he did this many signs and wonders, if he performed this many miracles, then in your hyperbole, you're saying all the books of the earth couldn't even contain what Jesus did in just three and a half years of ministry. You have selected only seven. So that means those seven are of special significance. And the interesting thing in every one of those seven is all of them are connected directly to an act of obedience. And it's not to say, it's not to build a theology to say that has to be the case every single time, but it is to say that it's the case much more than we think it is. Um, you know, Oral Roberts during the, uh, what we call the 1940s and 50s healing revival, uh, when he would broadcast over television and um, even later extending into the 50s would do things like asking people during prayers for healing to stretch their hands out to the TV. It wasn't because Oral thought the power of God is going to extend through the TV. It was because he knew there's a power in asking people to do something to partner. And if you watch myself, if you watch Randy, if you watch us connected to Global Awakening, do healing services, you'll see that we ask people when we give words of knowledge, stand up at the moment we call it out. Uh, it's not that there's necessarily a power in them standing, but it also isn't to say that there isn't because there's a power that happens when we choose to partner with what it is that God has declared. So one other passage from John um, that is the key, if you guys miss a lot of what I say in the rest of this 20-something minutes of teaching, Remember these words. Uh, it's five words from Mary, at least out of the NIV, five words um, that happens in John chapter two, which, you know, is the famous uh, Jesus accelerating time. He uh, does this what would ordinarily be a seven or eight year process of turning water into good wine in a moment. He turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And uh, it's powerful there, you know, with that miracle in and of itself. And of course, on the heels of that, we see this first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee caused his disciples to believe on him, but um, in, in no way to diminish that, I think the key there is actually found in Mary, his mother, and what she says to the servants when uh, Jesus has made it, interestingly, made it clear, it's not my time. I don't have an intention of performing the miracle right now, but yet there's a persistence in the heart of Mary that recognizes it's not yet your time. I understand that. And Jesus knew once my identity starts to be revealed, it's a very fast track to me being crucified at Golgotha. It's not yet my time, but Mary pulls something 
from the future into the present in the story. And uh, I, that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But um, in John 2, the words to Mary that I think are the key to this whole thing of living out the supernatural is she says, do whatever he tells you to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. And as simple as that is, we can't give any more profound and we can't have any more infinite possibility than just simply obeying and yielding and doing whatever he says. You know, the only ceiling with God is no ceiling. If we're willing to just simply press in, rest and yield, and that's not an easy thing. That's not a comfortable thing. Um, by design, it's typically not comfortable. It's typically disorienting. Um, and I like to say that God purposely disorients us to reorient us. Um, because before he can rebuild something new in the structure of our minds, our hearts, our faith, he has to first tear something down. He has to tear down that faulty, he has to tear down the, the systems of fear in order to rebuild what it is that, that he wants to forge within us. So with that being said, uh, let's look quickly here and continue along with 2 Corinthians one twenty. I'll have one or two stories for, for you guys, and then we'll wrap this up and move into Q&A. And this is just continuing to speak. Now we're lifting from Jesus into the theology of Paul, very briefly into this partnership element. Uh, and there's so many other passages we could look at, of course, the fact that we're co-laborers with Christ and et cetera. But this is one of my favorites. And we can start at 2 Corinthians one twenty, and it reads, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And that alone is such a such a, a statement of gravity. So if we're asking the Lord, is it your intention to bring a revival? Is it your intent to heal? Your intent to save? Do, do you intend to bring wholeness to this family? Uh, the promises of God are in, the yes is already given in Christ. And Paul uh, elsewhere also says that that it's not yes and no, but it's yes, yes. The promises of God are yes in Christ for no matter how many there are that have been given, they're yes. So the question then becomes, what do I need to do? The yes is given. So what do I do to come alongside and put myself under the plumb line of heaven to see this come to pass? So God, do you intend to do what you said you intend to do? That's the wrong question. We don't need to ask it. As much as we're tempted to ask it, it's the wrong question. The question is, what do you want me to do to put myself under the under the the fountain, if you will, or this heavenly waterfall? Take that and then transfer it to the world around us. So if we continue on reading here in the words from Paul, it says, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, for a lot of people, when, you, when we first read a statement like this, we can very easily either gloss over it, we cannot understand it. Sometimes that can, at a first glance or first meditation, appear heretical, but it's really not. We, we really don't understand the, uh, and this is not, part of this gets muddied with the way that the New Age is trying to, trying to hijack language, like manifesting your truth, or doing this, or doing that, or you can just create your own reality. That's not at all what Paul's saying. But what Paul is saying is that if we will do the best we can to emulate, we can't do it perfectly the way that Christ did. But if you do the best you can to emulate this reality of I'm going to choose to do what I see the Father doing only. I'm going to choose to only say what I hear the Father saying. When you choose to look at what is God doing, what's Jesus up to, where is he going, what's he doing, and how can I come alongside and partner with that and 
if he's already declared his yes and his promise is hovering, my yield of life becomes the amen, the let it be, that meets his his yes. And that's when we see dunamis. That's when we see power start to flow. And um, the, this is connected to, you know, as profound as it is, to the most subtle and in the eyes of man, the most simple actions. It's one of the things that I love so much about revival history. And I think applies directly into uh, and is so relevant to the times we're living in right now, you know, when we're looking out at uh, whether we're listening to, you know, whatever, whether it be a Fox or an MSNBC or a CNN or whatever, you know, if you spend all your energy being absorbed into, into those narratives, um, not to diminish the suffering in the world or any of those things, but it, you, when, when you let all of your attention go into uh a narrative that says, well, everything is just going to hell in a handbasket. You're going to miss out when God is saying, here comes an invasion of heaven. And actually, you find that the more chaotic, the more turbulent the times and the seasons, the more it becomes ripe for revival. Um, God actually uses shaping and creates and designs shaping as seedbed for seeds of revival. And um, with that being said, I want to tell one quick story that will hopefully be an encouragement for a couple of things. One, it's an encouragement to not be dissuaded when you're looking out and viewing the darkness. Let the Lord give you a heavenly lens. Let him bring you into a higher perspective. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's a, uh, let's say we're standing on a battlefield, um, you know, uh, the civil war comes to mind. Let's say, let's say early in the morning, there's a great deal of fog, you're in a swamp, et cetera. And you're looking out and on the other side of your enemy fortresses and you're having difficulty seeing because of just an immense fog. Well, if you were lifted up at a higher perspective in an aerial view, your, your, your interpretation of what was actually happening would be quite different. You would be able to see above the fog. And that's part of the beauty of studying these stories in history is, is when we come at it from a prophetic perspective, we're realizing this isn't just something of a textbook that I can gain intellectual knowledge about. This is giving me prophetic insight and gives me a forecast to be able to say, Lord, you're a God who does new things, but you're also a God who doesn't change. You're a God who loves patterns. And we see historically that you love to come. If I pull from my Pentecostal roots in the 1159 to 59 seconds moments and do it again, you come, you love to show up in the moments where it seems the, mo the most hopeless and bring hope and bring life. And so on one hand, uh, this will help give us a higher perspective. And on another hand, this will also help encourage those of us who feel like, well, I, I don't know if I have the right pedigree for this. I don't know if I know enough to do this. I don't know if I'm skilled enough to step into this thing or that thing, uh, because this is actually the beginnings of one of the greatest moves of God in history that happened through something that was so counter countercultural in terms of the way that we would view a great action for the kingdom of God. So really quickly, in 1949, uh, in Argentina, um, there was a man that was a missionary from the U.S. who was sitting there named Robert Ebert Miller. And, um, you know, I'm sure everybody watching or hopefully everybody watching believes in the power of blessing people prophetically when they're sent out. We're affirming you. We're sending you out on mission uh, before you're leaving a congregation. You're going to plant, etc. Well, the mission board that Miller was a part of, but when they were sending him out and he said, that he felt this desire to go and, and pioneer in Argentina, they told him, 
essentially they what they said was well argentina is the least fruitful climate in the whole western hemisphere to see anything happen for the kingdom but good luck and that was his prophetic word as he set out so he gets there and the thing is in the natural they were right argentina was was one of the leading nations uh if my memory serves correctly, maybe the leading nation at the time in sexual promiscuity and pro prostitution. It was Corinth on steroids. I, it was there was virtually no difference between someone who claimed to be a Christian versus unconverted. Uh, everyone involved in their government, uh, virtually everyone was involved deeply in the occult. They were calling for the erection of satanic monuments in the nation. Uh, opioid addiction was rampant. Uh, the largest church. In Argentina, it was 100 people. It, it was horrible. And so you can imagine how Miller feels being sent into that kind of an environment. And um, so he, he's working, he's toiling, he's toiling. And he ends up going on a fast. And as he's on this fast, he gets a few days in and the Lord speaks to him. And if we're honest, if we were in his shoes, this is a very frustrating thing that, that the Lord asked. He says, what are you doing? And Miller responds, and we would respond, saying, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm praying for your people that I think you call me to, that you've sent me to, for your spirit to come and move among your people. And you're asked to have the nerve to ask me, what am I doing? I'm fasting that you would send revival to your people. And this is, I believe, is, is very profound with the Lord said to him next. He's, he's, I believe, three days into this fast. And the Lord says, an empty stomach is not the coin of heaven, but rather the blood of Jesus. And now I think we should pause and, and kind of let that seep in for a second. And so questions begin to arise. Well, what about when you fast, not if you fast, not are you contradicting yourself? I don't think that's the case. I think what the Lord was doing here, you know, I've mentioned earlier, this disorienting thing. Many times... If we receive breakthrough on the heels of the way that we thought we would receive it, we would be guilty of attributing the breakthrough to the method rather than to the Lord. And I think God sees our human tendency to fall in love with models. And inevitably what you see happen in many dominations and many moves of God is we develop models because it makes us safer. But what happens often is we end up sacrificing the anointing for the sake of preserving our model and the way that we do it. And so I think what the Lord is doing here is saying, Miller, I'm reorienting, I'm reorienting you to the perspective that it's my blood, that it's grace. The revivals are an act of divine mercy. And it's not to diminish the importance of fasting, but in this instance, remembering the context of doing what he says in obedience in this instance, I'm not telling you to fast to bring about the survival. I think that's what's happening. So Miller, of course, asked, well, what do you want me to do? God says, call for a prayer meeting at your church. Tell everyone to come prepared to pray from 8 to 12 p.m. And if they're not prepared to pray, the whole four hours don't come. And as you can imagine, his, you know, despair is just kind of getting worse and worse and worse. And he says, well, God, I've already called for a really convenient time for all my people to come together and pray. And there's still hardly anybody showing up. Are you sure? Well, God, obviously, you're sure. <laughs> so he calls together the prayer meeting, and he's joined by three people. 
you know, we talk about greatness from small beginnings and we often use Pentecost as an example of their 120 in the upper room. Well, this is four people, Miller, a woman, I believe if I'm not, I may have the ages a little bit off, but I believe a woman in her eighties, a younger woman and uh, 18 to 20 years old and her husband who was not saved, didn't want to be there. And the wife just drug him there. So they start praying and Miller's crying out. He he's literally crying and, uh, they get through 8 p.m. and 12 p.m. And he's begging the rest of them, did God show you anything? Please, is there anything that the Lord gave you as a key? And no one is, is answering. And finally, the young girl is just staring at the ground, and he finally gets her to speak up. And she says, well, there's, you know, maybe, possibly, sort of something that God might have shown me, but I really don't think it's him. But, but here it is. And she said, I saw this picture in my mind that we were supposed to come to this pulpit in the center of the room and uh, that I was just supposed to make a fist and hit it. And he pleads with her, but she won't do it. She's too embarrassed. So that happens for three more nights. And on the fourth night, Miller comes to her. She still has having the same thing appear in her mind. And he says, okay, if we join you, so if we all march around this pulpit together and we worship and we all hit it, then will you, will you act on this impression? And she says, yes. So they come, they march around this pulpit together. And there's several lessons in this story. But the first one is Miller hits it, nothing. Older woman, nothing. Husband, nothing. When she hits it, the one who heard the word, who heard the rainbow and acted on it in obedience, partnered with what it is that God spoke to her, hits it. The doors blew open, the windows blew open. It was literally like another Pentecost, the wind of the spirit, like gale force winds swept through the building, knocked them all down. And the first one to be rolling and screaming in tongues was the husband who didn't want to be there. And uh, that birthed the 49 Argentine revival that led over into the crusade ministry of Tommy Hicks that eventually led over into Claudio Frazon and then uh, further down the line, eventually led over into the fruit of so much of the revival we're seeing in Brazil right now happen as that wave crested in Argentina. We believe it's spilling over into what's occurring right now in Brazil. Um, it's also fascinating to me that God so honored his word and he moved when she moved in obedience and hit the pulpit. But he gave her authority to do to partner with him and release this three nights earlier than when she did it. That's crazy to me, but, but that the Lord would speak to her on night one to do this. And she actually had a power relinquished by the Lord in a sense to her to hold up the blessing. And I wonder what would have happened. Now I personally believe in the grace and the greater scope and mercy of God that he would have brought me about the revival through another means. But it's amazing to think that just in this whole concept of binding and loosing, and we could pull into the Old Testament of Elijah uh, praying and being able to turn the water off and turn the water on, that there's this thing I think that we can miss of authority, of binding and loosing that the Lord gives, not that we can make something happen, but in the power that comes when the Lord initiates and decides to give the ball in our court and say, now it's up to you to respond. Um, but just the simple act of obedience changed the course of that nation. 
it saved Argentina, it saved the government, it saved the finance, it saved it 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 ripped people out of witchcraft, it ripped people out of idolatry, out of opioid addiction. It it changed the course of that nation and had a ripple effect of nations around the world. Uh, just that one act of obedience. And so there's a lot more I could say, but just for the sake of time, I think I want to close in prayer here for uh, everybody that's that's listening, that we would just have a fuller grasp on the scope of what God can do through a simple act of obedience and for the fact that regardless of the level of darkness, the level of wickedness and things that we're seeing when we're looking out into the world, that the Holy Spirit is never without a solution. And uh, it can be so easy for us, I think, to look at history and look at moves of God and then look at what we're experiencing or what we have experienced in our lifetimes in the present, I think, well, God must have downsized. And that's not the case. And so for everybody watching, I want you right now, let's just put our hand over our heart and just say, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you infinitely rule and you infinitely reign. I thank you for your glory Lord, for Habakkuk 2.14, that we know that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, we thank you that we're a part of that, that we're a part of the dissemination of your knowledge throughout the earth. We're a part, Lord, of what it means to, to walk in union and, and come union with you, to see your glory and your goodness cover the earth. Lord, thank you that we're called to partner with you in the declaration of the gospel, in the demonstration of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that regardless of how dark situations seem, regardless of how dark and bleak circumstances seem, that you are so actively, constantly moving behind the scenes. We thank you that you're sovereign, that you're providential. Lord, we thank you that out of that reality of your will, you summon us to partner our will with yours and to see the power of your kingdom come, Lord, that we would see the earth be more like heaven, like heaven through our lives. And uh, so, Father, I pray right now even for just an impartation for everyone that's listening, Lord, that you would impart hope, that you would lift our perspective higher, that you would not let us be dissuaded by what the enemy is doing, Lord, but that you would let us be like David. Let our face be set like flint. Let our eyes be just fixated upon the eyes of fire. Lord, let us have a fresh yearning and burning for revival in every nation, in our nation and every nation. Lord, let us never be tempted to ignore the power behind these simple acts of obedience they can change history in jesus name amen so good bro sorry wow yeah i feel them i feel them right now Whew. okay so thank you holy spirit so i have some questions for you brother that we're gonna go yeah over. um the first topic i want to talk about is healing because like, you know, you work with Global Awakening. You guys have seen thousands of healings uh, just in that last conference, 260 in one day, you know, like mm. incredible. Um, and, and 
I just love that God heals, but I wanted, I, I know a lot of people have these kind of basic questions and I just wanted to ask you them and give you a chance to kind of answer them. Like what is first is what is the purpose of healing? Oh my, oh man. I, I get the sense, you know, sometimes you start to do some of these and you get the sense that these are going to be a string of really good questions, but questions that could take hours to answer because mm-hmm. they're, because they're such good questions, but um, yeah. We'll take as long wow. as you need to. You, you have, you have okay. The purpose of healing. Well, I guess to give the ultimate summary is God's intention was for things to never be apart from the way that they were in the garden. Um, this is why when we have the culmination of the kingdom of God in the closing chapters and statements in Revelation, this vision that showed John on the Isle of Patmos, you have statements like every tear being wiped from our eye. Yeah. Um, God's intention for people, for humanity, and not only humanity, but creation, was uh, his intention was never natural disaster. His intention was never for our hearts or our bodies to be broken. His intention consistently was wholeness. And so I guess to give the shortest definition possible for the purpose of healing, it's that God intends to reconcile creation. He intends to reconcile lost and broken creation, which extends to spirit, soul, but also to the body. And so what we're seeing happen when healing begins to flow is um, is just that partnering with the Lord in seeing his broken and lost creation reconciled on him. And uh, in the Protestant movement in particular, we're, we're far too guilty of, of stopping that at salvation. And we, of course, salvation is, is, is no greater gift, but, uh, but th- there's, there's so much more to it than that. And um, we have to really go to enormous lengths within just the New Testament to separate the will of God in terms of healing and the miraculous deliverance resurrection from what it is that we see Jesus and the apostles doing. Um, in fact, Jesus on multiple occasions, as well as Paul in particular, directly equate the sign of the kingdom in our midst to a supernatural act. Um, one of my favorites is in Luke eleven twenty 20, uh, in Luke's account of Jesus encounter where surprise, once again, he's upset the religious officials and there's a demonized man. And, um, in the 20th verse, he's, he's accused of driving out demons by the Prince of Demons. And depending on your translation, uh, many of them will say you drive them out by the power of Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love one of the reasons this is one of my favorites is it's just funny to me that Jesus kind of, kind of roasts them. Um, he says, well, if I drive them out by the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So as he often does, he just sort of flips the script on them. But he says, if I drive out demons by the kingdom of God, then by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So from Jesus' own lips, the sign of the kingdom of God in our midst, in this specific verse, is the act of deliverance. Now, we could interchange that for uh, if I heal the sick by the kingdom of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. If I raise the dead 
by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. Um, and on and on and on. If I open blind eyes, if I open deaf ears, if I loose the tongues of, of mute. Um, so, I mean, we could continue going on and on and on here, but um, in, in short, uh, from the very beginning, God's intention was holiness. Um, and so the purpose of healing is just that we partner with the Lord and seeing things set right. Mm, very good. Ooh, good answer. Um, I guess, I mean, that really flows us into the next question is, is like, why does God heal some people, but not others at times? Mm. Yeah. So, um, personally, and I have a confident, I have a confidence in saying personally, that's reinforced by scholars that are much more brilliant than myself. Um, so personally, with the reinforcement of a large number of scholars, the late John Mark Ruth and uh, many others, I don't believe that God chooses to heal some and not others. What I believe is that we're in the middle of what's called a now and not yet kingdom theology, which is the fact that in, it's the acknowledgement um, of the fact that in the incarnation of Jesus, you have the inauguration of the kingdom of God. When we come into, when we referenced earlier, this these moments in Revelation, we have what's called the consummation of the kingdom of God, where there's a very large gap in the middle that we're living in, in this tension of the now, not yet hmm. experience of the kingdom that we're in right now. Uh, and when we understand that, some things begin to take a better shape in our theology, and some things begin to make more sense. Um, it's, you know, one of the most harmful things in terms of a theology of healing and the goodness of God are, are, are statements and, and their um, statements from people the vast majority of the time with really good intentions, but statements like, well, the Lord took your, your brother because he needed another angel. That's problematic for a lot of reasons. First of all, we don't become angels when we die. And secondly, the, the Lord is not in need of another angel. And thirdly, um, it's problematic because we're jumping through hoops to distort the goodness of God into something that's not good at all. Mm. But but it's his warped view of goodness that anyway, it's another rabbit that we don't have time to chase. Um but but why does God heal some and, and not others? I don't believe that God chooses um to say, you know, uh I pick you, I pick you, I pick you, don't pick you, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. And one of the one of the chief problems that we run into, as a matter of fact, when we're traveling and praying for healing around the world is an issue of unworthiness uh, or an issue of um, extending from unworthiness into, well, uh, God couldn't heal me, I, I performed this sin in the past week, or... Uh, this person is, they're in need of it more than me, or uh, even just recently a trip I was on, someone needed to be healed of, um, I forget what particular issue, and uh, they didn't get healed. And someone else that was standing next to them was healed of a broken finger. And um, there was just confusion there on their part of, why did they heal this? But it's a bigger issue, this thing get healed. Or why would God do that? Uh, uh, I don't think that, that it's God choosing to pick some and not others. I think that on one level, much of healing is a mystery. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, so if there's anyone that ever, for everyone who's watching, um, if anyone ever says, I've got all the answers, I'm the grand poobah, I've got it all figured out, um, don't listen to them. You can disregard whatever else you say. <laughs> Nobody has it all figured out. Figured out. Um, but with that being said, uh, we're also in the middle of a battle. We're in the middle of a war. I, I don't think it's God choosing some and not others. I think that we have a real enemy. We have a real, a real Satan and a real force of demonic power that hates us, that uh, hates humanity, but especially hates those who uh, carry the name of Jesus on their lips, those who, who are image bearers of God. He especially hates us. And um, when you're in the middle of a war, you have battles, and some battles you win and some battles you lose. Um, but the important thing is rest in tension, rest in the mystery, be comfortable with saying, I don't know. Hmm. But what I don't want to do is assign, assign a motive to the Lord that detracts from his goodness. That's what I don't want to do. Wow. Um, does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah, that is very helpful. Um, Good. So something that I've heard global talk about is like the five-step prayer model for healing. Um, and I wanted to yeah. just ask you like, um, first, how, well, what's, what's your story with like the first healing you've prayed for? And then also like how, for someone that feels called to pray for the sick, like, how would you say like to go about it? The first healing I prayed for, well, I honestly can't remember the first healing I prayed for. I'll never forget the first one I saw because um, it still it still is one of the most dramatic I've seen. The very first one I've seen. Um, let's see if I can. I'll I'll try to make this super quick. Um, right after I was saved, and it was in a very radical way, very supernatural way. Um, I began digging into the New Testament, and that, along with the the nature of the way I was saved, uh, gave me a perspective and insight into the fact that the supernatural is real we can hear from the lord uh, we we can do this um i didn't understand why i had not been really taught that but i knew this is this is a reality so uh that happened when i was 15 years old from 15 to 17 years old i prayed for over a thousand people uh within that two-year span on the streets trying to get a word of knowledge right trying to get a, a single see a single healing and i didn't see anything um and that was very discouraging, but there was something in me that just knew you can't give up, you can't quit. Um, and for a lot of different reasons, you know, one of them was I, I always had this sense that if I, if I know that this is real, I have a responsibility, regardless of how my emotions are in the meantime. And I, I really don't get the option to quit because my, blood was a shed i didn't take the stripes so i don't get to quit as as deep down i always felt that but i tried to quit again and again and again i i would go out and i'm i'm never gonna pray for anyone again crying and then the next day i'd be back at it so i i never to my knowledge saw anything for two years um and there was a whole other story as to what kicked off a lot of this but i ended up in atlanta georgia and um still with the Holy Spirit there, uh, a man named Blake Cook prayed for me. And um, this is just a mighty baptism from the Holy Spirit. Well, on the heels of that, there's a man that came over and asked me, would you pray for my son? And uh, 
we, I ended up saying, okay, he goes to get his son. And I'm trying to build myself up because I still at this point had seen nothing. And one of the things that Blaine had prophesied to me during that long encounter when I was on the ground is, Brian, God's about to start using you in creative miracles. Hmm. But I had not seen anything. So in my mind, that was, okay, creative miracles. The headaches you're praying for are going to get better. You know, stomach aches, shoulders are going to get better. And his son probably has something like that and he'll get better. So I see the father come around the corner. We're in the basement of a Sheraton Hotel in downtown Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And then I see his son come around the corner about 30 seconds later in a wheelchair. His hands are severely, uh, severely drawn in. His feet are very clubbed. He had the worst scoliosis. I think I've still the worst case I've ever seen. And he ended up, he was suffering from this severe muscular skeletal disease. Um, he was 12 years old. I think for the past six years, he it had digressed to the point where he was unable to walk at all. Wow. And so if you've never seen anything, you're trying to build yourself up for a headache and that happens. I mean, my heart just saying, I was completely, totally convinced nothing's going to happen. Um, but I did feel compassion. One of the things that you'll hear if anyone tunes into us global that we we value is um, we strive to see everyone healed, but we know we don't see everyone healed as much as we would, as much as we would want to. But what we can do is make sure that people feel loved, and we can make sure to utilize compassion. And I felt that I could feel the pain that uh, he was in, that his father was in, and. So, but, but I was convinced nothing was going to happen. So I put my one hand, my right hand on his left leg as he was facing me. And I looked down at the ground and I closed my eyes because I was so sure nothing was going to happen. I didn't even want to look and see right. your failure. So I prayed for maybe about 20 minutes. And as I was getting ready to stop, I heard, dad, my legs are getting hot. My legs are getting hot. And I had just learned that heat was a sign that healing was flowing. So at the time, I, I didn't recognize it, so it's too new. But looking back, this was the first time I ever operated in the gift of faith. Um, but I looked up, and I looked over at my friend Matt, and something just rose up in me where I knew, I knew that God is healing him. And I said, Matt, God's healing him right now. I put my other hand on his leg and uh, started praying like I was a, a Rhema graduate. God, we call those things that are not as though they are in the name of Jesus. As you cursed the fig tree, when you walked the earth, you commanded it to wither. We command every bit of the disease to wither. Da, 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 da. And uh, we started to hear what sounded like like a, a crackling or a popcorn. And watched God reset his hands and then his feet and then reset the scoliosis and then helped him out of the chair and refill the muscle atrophy in his legs, throwing out his jeans. And he, I mean, it was a literal multiple creative miracles to this one 12 year old boy. And we just watched him walk and pick up the pace and, and walk faster and faster across the basement floor to Sheraton. And, uh, and we had a, a crowd that it came at that point and just so much happened. But, but that was the first, the first thing that I ever saw in terms of a, a miraculous, uh, moment or healing moment, um, and as you can imagine, if you see something like that and you've been praying for two years to get a headache, that does something to you. And um, it was very hard to go back, mm -hmm. very hard to go back from that.
Mm. Wow, dude. That's so powerful. So, so I guess so my, my, I forgot the second part of the question. My advice for anyone that's looking to pursue this would be start anywhere you can, everywhere you can, and don't give up. Um, mm. As simple as that is, that's, that's, that's the most important key. Uh, start wherever you can, whenever you can, and don't give up. I, I uh, myself and, and lots of my friends ended up, you know, many of our churches were, even Pentecostal churches were very conservative, even in believing in the gifts. Um, you can, you can either be, a, those of you who are watching, um, there's probably some of you who are either in very liberal churches where you don't even believe in this at all. Or you're in very conservative spiritual churches where it's you're open to the Holy Spirit, but in a but in a very uh, very limited manner. And um, that was the case for myself and my friend Matt, where it was sort of a, a a lens of well, this can happen maybe every now and then. And it ended up getting to a point where there was too much tension within us to the point where we weren't really allowed to pray for the sick within the church anymore and uh i just knew well it's a biblical mandate you have to do it and so we just went into walmart we went into the mall we went into uh the university and um or outside the university rather and uh we went quite a while seeing nothing but when it started happening um that was it the floodgates were open and I think that's going to be the case for every one of you. Wow. So good. So good. All right, man. Well, the next topic is uh, revival. And uh, I mean, I this is something that we're wanting to see in Chattanooga with local. And uh, I really believe the Lord's going to do it just from my experience this last Sunday and the past couple Sundays, just seeing like the Holy Spirit show himself and manifest all over the room on me during worship. I I just really, I'm excited to see it, but I, a lot of people don't even know what revival is or things like that. And I just have some questions on that is like, um, I wanted to ask you like, what is, uh, in your opinion, the spiritual meaning of revival? Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, all of these are really good and really tough questions. I'm, sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. It's, I, I like, I like that. It always gets, I like things that, that start to get the juices flowing um there there are a lot of different definitions you know one of them um charles finney um defined revival as and this right nothing less than a complete and utter return to full obedience to the word of god uh winky pratney um it was probably my favorite scholar on revival um certainly up there uh his is a little bit funny yeah well he has two that i really love one is he says that revival is a divine assault on society and the other is he says that revival is when god gets so fed up with his people misrepresenting him that he decides to show up in person center stage to kick butt and take names mm. that's what uh that's what winky says um there's there's a lot of things but i i think I think our our template for revival, um, you know, we have what I would consider um, many examples of revivals in the Old Testament, uh, ranging from uh, what we see through King Josiah to uh, even 
Gideon um, tearing down the idols of his fathers. You know, there there are there's a lot of Old Testament examples, uh, New Testament examples as well. Uh, but I, I I think everyone would mostly agree that the template is found on the Feast of Pentecost and the birthing of the church. Um, you start off with 120 members of the church, and you know by the end of the day you have 3,120 members of the church. Hmm. Um, so, I, and you have the miracles and signs and wonders. They have apostolic preaching of the cross, and you know all of that stuff that goes with it: and repentance and baptism and um, power, boldness, uh, prophecy. Um, so that that's our template, and and one of the struggles. Um, often that I found in some, even some different meetings and events that I've spoken at, um, with some others at different schools of thought, uh, one in particular was I remember speaking about this and there was somebody, um, that said, well, I don't think we need to, uh, contend or, or teach about revival because God never intended for us to not be in revival. And, um. I understood his heart and where he was coming from. And I said, that's great, but God also never intended that we lie. Hmm. <laughs> he never intended that we do uh, a lot of things that we're continuing to fall into. And what he does out of mercy is he comes and he pulls us back out of that pit again. And um, again, I understand where he was coming from. And so there, there's a lot of schools of thought that sort of say, well, we're still technically in revival due to what we find lifted from the language of Pentecost. And um, I, I think we began in revival in the church, and that's our template of what God intends for us to be. But we're really no different whatsoever from, from Old Covenant Israel. Hmm. Um, you, God comes, he restores, he's merciful, he pulls you out of the pit, he redeems you. And then... You go just a couple of chapters, and and then Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the rescue began, and then Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and you have this just happening over and over and over, and um, that's that's humanity, that's humankind, and uh, mm. that that's the that's the need for revival is because people inevitably at some point things go by the wayside, and when that happens, the need for the love and the mercy of God is present for Him to come and and do his part of being the rescuing one. And um, so that that's our, that's the need for revival is, mm. is that we, we um, are in need of that, not only the rescuing, but the fact that God wants to dwell with his people. Um, again, back to this picture of Genesis in the garden and the intention of God from the beginning is to walk and talk and dwell with his people. And wow. the more you have this, this issue of sin and corruption getting into the mix and all those weeds that are sprouting up uh, throughout the earth and in the hearts of people, the more that erodes that just simplicity and beauty of relationship of communion and koinonia of fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And when revival is happening, God is uprooting those weeds and he's planting kingdom seeds in its place so that they can take root. They can that kingdom loving can get in place, and that can then begin to permeate our hearts, and then flow from us and permeate society and the world around us. Wow, very good, man. Um, I love I love how in depth these questions are, and I love your answers. <laughs> wow, I I just like feel Holy Spirit all over, and I know they're really challenging. 
but I really do believe like someone on the other side is having these questions and you are answering them right now for sure. Like, I mean, goodness. So I have a couple more um, and then I want to talk about evangelism and then I'm going to ask you one final question and then we're going to pray out. So what brings about revival and what happens when revival comes? Oh boy. This may be the toughest one. Yeah. Um, well, uh, one element of what brings it about uh, is in this this story I shared about Argentina. Mm-hmm. And um, often, what I, I normally um, at conferences and things like that will share that message in a much longer format um, and deal with the perspectives of both the sovereignty of God and our human responsibility um, because people typically fall into an either or camp and my conclusion with the message is to say it's not an either or it's both and hmm. and that most things in the kingdom are both and um, it's not is it is it the love of God or the justice of God it's both um, so uh Anyway, with that being said, one of the things that brings it about is deciding to be a persistent people, to be a people that are in pursuit rather than in passivity. Mm. Um, you know, that whole Matthew eleven twelve reality that kingdom, uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Um, violence is opposite, is the opposite of passivity. You know, mm. um, and as a matter of fact, if you back up just five verses from that, in Matthew eleven seven, when Jesus is speaking of his cousin John the Baptist, uh, he compares him to Herod. And many people don't know that that's what he's doing. But he says, did you go out to see, expecting to see a reed shaken in the wind? And the reason that that's a comparison to Herod and is really a skewering of Herod is that uh, Herod's coin at the time that was minted and then distributed starting in Tiberias and then throughout the rest of the regions of their world, at the, of their their territory. At the time, Herod's image that he chose to be put on his coin was not his face. Um, it was not another type of wealthy symbol. He chose the image of a reed because a reed was known in their day to be a symbol of neutrality. Wow. He was in effect saying... I'm choosing this symbol to not align with fully with the Jews or fully with the Roman Empire. I'm dead in the middle. And so Jesus was effectively saying, you didn't go out. And when you went to see John, you didn't go to see a compromiser. Hmm. You went to see someone that wasn't just straddling the fence. You went to see somebody who was all in. And so on one level, what does that is deciding, even if I'm going to look foolish, even if I don't understand, I don't get it. I'm going to be a person that's all in. I'm going to be a person, even if there's some resistance at first, you know, like this girl in the Argentine revival story, eventually she ends up partnering with what it is the Lord told her to do, despite the fear, despite her not understanding it. On one level, that's what brings it about. There also is the issue of the Lord's sovereignty. Um, there, there are just some things that end up getting coordinated when you look at history and you see, okay, no matter how much concentrated effort we tried to to exert to put this on no man could have done this uh no number of men and women could have done this 
you know, just this is just this God tapestry that he worked out. Um, that being said, I think the more that I look at the history of revivals, I, I think that uh, I how do I say this? I think that most of the time when we're when we're crying out for these suddenly moments, I think the road to getting to the suddenly is consistency. Hmm. I think that um, as God is looking for and weighing our hearts, he looks to see, okay, let's say there are a thousand people in a particular geographical space crying out for a Bible. Well, out of those 1,000 people, how many are not only just praying for it to come, but how many how many are taking steps in faith that say, we believe, God, that you're going to do this? Wow. How many are making the uh, necessary spiritual preparations, mental preparations, physical preparations? How many are looking to say, okay, Lord, we believe that you're going to move. Uh, where are we going to put these people? How many are building kingdom relationships so that when if we're believing for this many people to be swept into the harvest that we could say, okay, I'm, I'm going to choose to not try to hoard everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be willing to call up another pastor, even of another denomination and say, Hey, I can't fit this many people here. Can you take them? Can you take them? Can you take them? And um, I think when the Lord looks and he begins to see that, okay, this person, this person by their actions is showing me that they believe that, I, that, I mean what I say when I'm telling them that I'm getting ready to move. And, you know, again, the natural, let's say we're, we're, we're getting, let's say I'm getting ready to move homes. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't just wake up on the day that the move is happening and it just goes off without a hitch. There's a lot of stuff that leads up to the move. And if you believe that you're going to be moving, you're going to be making those steps. You're going to be taking those, those uh, measures to make sure that you can do and something always goes wrong it's the same way in revival something always goes wrong you can't manage everything when revival happens it's a wildfire um there's going to be sin there's going to be counterfeit there's going to be mnemonic there's it's as one of the other problems is when we try to micromanage we end up quenching the spirit wow that's good um so i don't know if this is this is super helpful but hopefully some of this no. free full thought is at least helpful to some who are having these questions around what what starts it off and then what we need to do to as best we can manage uh what the lord is doing so good all right brother well we might have to do another episode i was just looking at the time and yeah. i was thinking oh yeah i, I was thinking the I'd, lord, love, I'd love to yeah we we definitely like this is so good that I think there has to be a part two because I, I want to like get everything out of you, like squeeze it out, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I really, I'm really blessed, man. And I always ask one question at the end of the podcast. Uh, well, I don't always, I just started doing it like recently, but, um, and I usually ask like what they're going to do in the city, but I see that the Lord is moving you to these different cities, different churches and stuff and having you like spread the gospel. And it's like incredible. So my question for you is like, I think I'm going to ask you to, and I, in one minute or less, if you'll answer it, uh, that would be great. So the first one is, what do you want to see God do in the body of Christ? Yeah. uh, In Acts 
chapter two, when we had the beginning of Pentecost, one thing that uh, really struck me um, about a year ago, looking at it in the Greek, is you see that they were all gathered together in one place. They were all together in one place. And then there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. In the Greek, that word all together is a compound word, homothumadon, that means they rushed together in unity. Before the rushing wind, they rushed together in unity. I think that's one of the biggest missing keys to us seeing revival. And so uh, as to what I would love to see the Lord continue to do in the church as a whole, it's to bring us into unison. Mm -hmm. It's to cause us to uh, lay down denominational barriers and embrace each other, embrace differences, realize that unity is achievable without uniformity and that where unity is, God can commands a blessing. And uh, I think the more unity we obtain, the more of the knowledge of the Lord corporately we obtain, the more corporately we come into the mind of Christ, and the more that we will see the fullness of the measure of the kingdom that God intends for us to see. So good. So good. Okay. So now the second question is, what do you want to see God do in the world? Oh, uh, well, I... I, you know, probably the same answer. Um, so I, I think what we're seeing, you know, in revivals or, and these things are sort of these pockets uh, of that expression of the kingdom. And what you're hoping to see is that there would be a pocket here, a pocket here, a pocket here. And eventually, let's say those revival pockets fill up Chattanooga. They fill up Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. They fill up all of Pennsylvania. They fill up Pittsburgh. They fill up Philadelphia. They fill up Knoxville. They fill up Nashville. And it just spreads, and then it's this whole leaven of the kingdom thing. Then eventually, it doesn't look like it. It starts small. People despise the day of small beginnings. And then before you know it, this has just turned the world upside down with the glory and the goodness of God and the gospel. And uh, so that's what I am hoping to see is, to borrow from the language of our ministry, a global awakening. Mm, wow, so good, brother. All right, man. Well, we're going to definitely have to do a part two. This was so good. And I'm just so honored to like know you and get to know you. I mean, I want to build a friendship here. I really, I really, I just love what Global Awakening is doing. And I love the call that God's put on your life. Um, And I can't wait to just see more of it. Um, And I would just love for you to just pray like an impartation prayer of what you have on your life over everybody that's watching right now. Yeah. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for once again your rule your reign i thank you for the superiority of your unshakable kingdom lord your kingdom can't be shaken because the king jesus cannot be shaken and lord regardless of what happens in the political sphere regardless of what happens economically regardless of what happens in any systems of the world then the dynamics of your kingdom can't be shaken. And Lord, we're the inheritors of that. We're the inheritors, Lord, Hebrews 12, of this kingdom that can't be shaken. And Father, I just ask for everybody that's listening to this, everybody that will subsequently listen to this, that will watch this, uh, Lord, for, for however many people this is shared to, even people that just hear it in the background, Lord, that you would let there be powerful seeds planted. Yes, God. And uh, God, that you would... Let there be impartation. Thank you that there's no distance from the realm of the spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the the crazy numbers of people we've seen healed just over the airwaves, just over watching videos, over playing some streaming, some streaming something in the background. Lord, thank you for an impartation that we've seen happen 
even without the laying on of hands, Lord, as powerful as that is, as powerful as it is being in the room, Lord, there is no distance with you. You are in all and through all. And so, Father, I just thank you for touching each and every person that listens to this, God. And we pray for increase in the anointing and the gifts of their lives. Let there be impartation in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, bro. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. We love you guys. God bless you. And I hope this just changes your life. In Jesus' name. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for watching. I hope this podcast changed your life today. If it did, put in the comments. Tell us what you learned, how it helped you. Put amen in the comments. Let's just blow this up and share this with a friend. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I love you guys. See you next week.